Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field, and as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and were very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take uh, our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, um, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become our people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secured and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should we treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I first made the outline for the series on Genesis, this is one of those passages, you know, I've read Genesis a few times, and I knew that I was not going to know what to do with it whenever we come to it. So 
Up until about Monday, I had basically planned to skip it. Um, I had basically planned to lump it in with another passage and to uh, just kind of mention it briefly on my way to talking about something more pleasant and easier. Because this passage is it's literally just one of those that you read and it's just like, what redemptive value is in that story? It's a bit of a crazy story. It's, it's an interesting story, um, but it's not one that you necessarily feel uh, jolly and devotional after you read it because it is uh, dark, it's, it's twisted, it's, it's, it's a difficult passage. And, but then on Monday, I was reading through it and praying to the Lord that he would give me the, the words to say to you all on even just a, a short um, mentioning of this passage because it's so difficult. And I was just struck with the lack of the voice of Dinah in this passage. You see, this chapter is all about Dinah, but she doesn't speak. And yet she cries out to be heard. And I was reminded of the Me Too movement in 2017. Can you believe it's already been six years uh, since the Me Too movement started when thousands of women who have been silenced, whose voices have not been heard, finally came together so that their voices could be heard. And it started with the few allegations against Harvey Weinstein that turned into many, many allegations against him. And then it just snowballed and, and we heard We heard of the plight of sexual assault in our community and in our world. And the statistics about sexual assault um, are staggering. Um, I think that the um, National Sexual Violence Resource Center says that one out of every five women has experienced rape or attempted rape in their life. And so when you get to a passage about Dinah that's about that very thing, how are you just going to skip over that when one out of every five, 20%, of women experience this. And so chances are, very strongly, that someone that you're close with has experienced something of this sort. Yet the vast majority of sexual assault goes unreported. Church, God knew that we would need this passage. He knew that we would need Genesis 34. He knew that, there would need, that we would have need for a Me Too movement. He knew that this is the reality of the fallen world that we live in, and so therefore, we need to address these things in our churches and talk about what justice looks like in these situations. That's why he put it here. He knew we would need this passage, and so we cannot just skip over it. Dinah will not be silenced here today. And this passage is particularly difficult because there's just so little redemptive context. I mean, No one does anything correct in this passage. It's just everything is wrong. Everything is a failure, which I'm kind of used to now because we've been reading Genesis for a little while, and it's like every passage, like everything is wrong. But this passage in particular, everyone does wrong. This passage gives us little in moral example to imitate. But instead, what we have in this passage is a series of inadequate and inappropriate responses to sexual violence and injustice. And so what we'll do is we'll look at those inadequate and inappropriate responses to injustice, and then we're going to move to a specific place in the New Testament where we learn about God's heart for Dinah and all those who have been abused and oppressed. And it's good news. God God has such a heart for those who have been hurt in this kind of way. So church, if you will, point number one, 
is inadequate and inappropriate responses to injustice. Point number one is inadequate and inappropriate responses to injustice. Let's walk through this passage. They're all over this passage. Starting in verse one. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And Dinah, at this point, is a young woman. Dinah is probably about 15 years old. We can date her with that age based upon some circumstances that go on around her, um, some of the next passages about Joseph. We get a good idea of about how old she is. She's in her teenage years. Dinah, if you remember, which it's, it's just kind of a, a fleeting verse in the previous chapter, she is the only mentioned daughter of Jacob. He has 12 sons, and at this point he still only has 11. Benjamin hasn't been born yet. So she has 11 brothers, no sisters that we know of, although it's possible. And so she's the only girl around here. And it says that she went out to spend time with the women of the land. Can you blame her? If you've got that much testosterone around, your four moms, they don't get along. And so you, you got to go and spend some time with the women of the land. She's getting out of the house. Verse 2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Humiliated her. Now, this land of Shechem, this guy's name is Shechem, and they're in the land of Shechem, which makes you think that this guy's probably a bit of a spoiled brat, okay? You don't name your kids. You're not the king, and you name your land the same thing as you name your child, unless your child is a little bit spoiled. And uh, Shechem is the prince of the land, and he's in line to be the king, and he sees Dinah, and he seizes her, and he lays with her, and he humiliates her. The words that are used here are completely one-sided. There's absolutely no way that this was consensual, <laughs> and there's no way to blame Dinah for what has happened. And so the first inappropriate response to injustice here is to blame the victim. The Bible will not allow us to blame Dinah for what has happened to her. Sure, she's going out to see the women of the city, but she's definitely not going out to see Prince Shechem. She's not going out there to see him. We're not allowed to ask, what was she doing in the city? Because we know what she was doing in the city. She was seeing the women of the land. We're not allowed to ask, what was she wearing? What time was it? We're not allowed to ask these questions because the passage makes it really clear that Shechem saw her, that he seized her forcibly, and he forced himself upon her. He humiliated her. This text does not allow us to do this. It's clear that Shechem did an evil thing. Verse 3, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father saying, get this girl for me, for my wife. I guess Shechem decided he wanted her. And just like the spoiled brat that he is, his dad said, okay, well, let's do this. Nowhere in the text do we hear Dinah's opinion on the matter. Now, verse 5, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. Now, how did he hear? Well, Dinah certainly wasn't alone. If he, if he heard about it, Dinah couldn't have been alone. Someone must have came back and told Jacob what had happened. And the word defiled here, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. It's not like saying that Dinah is now damaged goods or anything like that. You have to remember that the original hearers of the book of Genesis were the Jewish people. And what was one of the worst things that could happen to a Jewish person is to be 
made ceremonially unclean. And so to be defiled, oh, like as they're hearing this story, the, they're just, you know, squirming. This, this sounds terrible. The original hearers understand the full context of that. And so how does Jacob respond when he hears that his daughter has been defiled? It says in the second half of verse 5, But his sons were with the livestock, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Jacob, the man who saw Rachel and went and kissed her and lifted the huge rock off the well by himself, the man who, when he got news that his son Joseph had been killed, even though he hadn't been killed, we're not quite there yet. The man who ripped his clothes and wept for days. Joseph, not Joseph, Jacob, this man who is demonstrative, he's, 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 very, he's not stoic. Let me just put it like that. He's not stoic. But for some reason, when Dinah, the daughter of his less favored wife, Leah, is seized and taken and defiled. He decides to sit on it, to hold his peace, to take a moment. You see, Jacob is responding inadequately. His sons are far more upset than Jacob is. The text describes his sons as indignant, very angry. They have to go to Jacob and say, such a thing should not happen in Israel. Such a thing should not happen in Israel. But Jacob... Instead, he sees this as an opportunity for political gain. Jacob sees this as an opportunity for political gain. He's using someone else's, his daughter, but his less favored daughter's misfortune to increase his own possessions and standing in the city. Shechem and his dad, the king Hamor, they show up to Jacob's house to propose a marriage. And here's what they say. Verse 8, but Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Jacob, the man who raped your daughter is at at your house in, in front of your face. How do you respond? I don't have to go into a lot of details about the way he should have responded. I'll tell you that if it happened in the Lang household, the Mississippi in me would be coming out very quickly. He would not make it very far. But Jacob sees this as an opportunity. And look at what, look at what Hamor offered Jacob. Hamor offered him land, offered him a place for his his livestock to graze, free travel. In short, Hamor is offering Jacob the very same thing that God has offered Jacob. He's being offered the promised land, but a shortcut to the promised land. All you have to do is give your daughter to my my son. Jacob is more concerned with protecting the institution of his inheritance and prosperity than he is in defending his oppressed daughter. Jacob is more concerned with defending the institution than he is defending his own oppressed daughter. In 2019, the Houston Chronicle reported over 300 
cases of sexual abuse that occurred within Southern Baptist churches. And this report spurred the SBC to set up an independent study into those allegations. And the independent study didn't just yield 300 cases, but revealed that the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention had received over 700 reports of sexual misconduct by people in those churches. Yet the executive committee of that denomination decided to hold their peace, to sweep it under the rug, to protect the institution instead of those who had been oppressed. In an attempt to protect the institution, they refused to protect the hurting. I think that they're taking steps to fix that now, but this secret list of over 700 cases of abuse is without excuse. I think Pastor Micah Edmondson, whose sermon I benefited from a lot as he explained this passage, said it best when he said, refusal to protect suffering people is not a sign of gospel focus, it's a sign of gospel compromise. Refusal to protect suffering people is not a sign of gospel focus. It's a sign of gospel compromise. In this passage, you see two major failures um, to respond to injustice. The, The first is an inadequate response, which is what we've seen so far. The second is the entire other side of the spectrum. The brothers give an over-retaliation to the response because they're in there, they're hearing Hamor's offer to Jacob, and they're seeing that Jacob is entertaining the idea. You know, Jacob is a bit of a cheat, and he'll use anything to get a, a leg up on those around him, even the oppression of his own daughter. And the sons are hearing this, and they, they come up with a scheme. And it's, you got to kind of applaud them. They're, they're, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. They come up with a scheme that will allow them to get exactly what they want as well. And the, the narrator clues us into this, and he says that the, the sons have came up with a way to, to deal deceitfully with Shechem. And so they go to Shechem after, I guess Jacob's going to consider the offer for a little bit, and they, they go to Shechem and Hamor, and they say, look here. We can't let our sister marry someone who's not circumcised. We can't do that. That type of thing shouldn't be done in Israel. So here's what you do. All of your men have to get circumcised. They all have to go through this slightly painful procedure. And then we'll give our daughter, we'll give our sister to be married to you. And this sounded fairly reasonable to Shechem and his dad. They're also trying to make political alliances, and so they go out, and they actually convince all their men to undergo the procedure. It probably doesn't take a lot of convincing. He is the king. They have force. What the king says goes, and so they go out and tell the men that that's what's happening, and this is when the story turns especially dark, because while the people of Shechem are still recovering from their circumcisions, two of those brothers, Levi and Simeon, the second and the third oldest of, um, of all of the, the brothers. They're sons of Leah, so they are brothers, full brothers of Dinah, not half-brothers. They've got the same mom. They go out and they kill every man in the city. And uh, a famous preacher, he, uh, I was reading his commentary, his name's Kent Hughes, and here's what he said about this, and it was just too good of a line to leave out. Like, he just wrote, he wrote the heck out of that line, you know? He, it was just too good of a line to leave out, but it's it's, it seems like something that, um, what's the guy that wrote uh, the, the Road? And Cormac McCarthy, 
would write. Um, the murderous orgy ended with the executions of Hamor and the groom-to-be, after which the blood-soaked brothers led their trembling sister out of the wailing town. It's graphic. While what happened to Dinah was absolutely terrible, this is certainly not an eye-for-an-eye response. This is an over-retaliation. The brothers remind us of Lamech in chapter 4. Do you remember Lamech? He was, the first, uh, he was the, the first gangster rapper that we know of who said, Cain's killed his seven, I've killed my 77. He, he says, I, my vengeance is 77 times what Cain's vengeance is. Jacob's inaction pushed the brothers to over-respond with violence and murder. And it leads Jacob to curse Simeon and Levi at the end of Genesis. When we get to Genesis chapter 49, you'll see that. Simeon and Levi, they receive a, cur- a curse because of their violence. At some point, while Simeon and Levi are enacting their justice, quote-unquote, against Dinah, it, it, it changed in motivation for Simeon and Levi because not only did they go out and enact justice, but the text says that they plundered the city. And so at some point, it stopped being about Dinah even for them, and it started to be about personal gain for themselves as well. They wanted to go and take all the things that were in the city and bring it back to themselves. Not only did they kill the, the men, but they plundered the city. They took the flocks, the herds, the donkeys, and all of the wealth. And this te- teaches us that there is a way for you to fight for justice for the oppressed while seeking personal gain. Sometimes we can use the fight for justice as a way to gain for ourselves. You can march for life or for lives that matter in a way that serves yourself more than it serves those who are being oppressed. Moral outrage can quickly turn into dishonest gain. Bible scholar John Walton, he says this about this passage. He says, everyone misuses Dinah in this passage. She's an object of passion to Shechem, a bargaining chip for Hamor, a source of moral outrage and dishonesty for her brothers while her father looks on in passive indifference. And there's no examples to follow in this passage. It is just a master course on injustice and the wrong ways to respond to injustice. It's hard to find any redemptive value at all until you consider where exactly this is happening and what this land of Shechem would eventually turn to become. Now, there's no way you would know this unless you looked it up in a commentary or if you're a biblical archaeologist, we got any of those in here. Um, But when you look at where the land of Shechem is, it would later be in the time of Jesus' day, known as Samaria. And in fact, the exact city of Shechem would later be known as Sychar. And if you are very familiar with your Bible, you might recognize the land of Samaria and the city of Sychar as a particular place where Jesus met a particular woman at a particular well that happened to also belong to Jacob. Let's turn our arrivals to John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over there. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be going. Because it's here that we learn of God's heart for the abused and the oppressed. It 
In John chapter 4, we come to this familiar story about Jesus going through the land of Samaria and he encounters the woman at the well. And Jesus is alone with the woman. The disciples have gone to get food. The woman is there in the middle of the day as to avoid the crowd. And so no Mike Pence rule for Jesus here. He's alone with her. And he asks the woman for a drink and she's confused as to why he's even talking to her. He says, aren't you a Jewish person? She says, aren't you a Jewish person? I'm a Samaritan. Why are you even speaking to me? So Jesus, he deals with her calmly and gently. He eventually tells the woman to go and call her husband and to come back. Now, many of you are familiar with this passage. And if you're not, I'd love to go, go through it in more depth at, at some other time. In fact, we're going, we're going to be doing the series on John in, starting in the fall. So we're going to be hitting this passage in probably six months. And so I'll preach it in more detail at that point. But one thing that I want to explain from this passage is that our understanding of the woman of the well has been wrong for many years. The way that I've always understood this passage has been that Jesus is trying to expose her personal moral depravity as he is asking her to go get her husband and to bring him back. But that's not what's happening here. You have to think about the ancient society that this woman was a part of. You see, this woman did not have the rights to write a legal divorce. She wasn't out there divorcing these men because what's exposed is that she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right, you don't. In fact, you've been divorced five times, and the man that you're with now, you're not married to. But this is not a woman who's just gone around marrying and divorcing. This is a woman who's been passed around. This is a woman who's been oppressed, who's been abused. This is a woman who's not been honored. She's been taken advantage of, and she's down and out. What Jesus is essentially saying is that, woman, though you move around during the heat of the day so that you can go unseen, and though you feel as though no one really cares about you, I see you, and I care, and I got you. I see you, and I care, and I got you. The woman at the well asks Jesus, she says, where, Jesus offers her living water, and the woman at the well says, where are you going to get this living water? You don't even have anything to draw with. Are you greater than our father Jacob? What a question. This woman, living in the land of Shechem, alone, oppressed, asking Jesus, are you better than our father Jacob, who would not protect the abused and the oppressed? And Jesus has to think you're getting it. While Jacob failed to protect his daughter, Jesus consistently shows his heart for the abused, the neglected, the outcast, and the oppressed. In fact, the gospel author of John makes it clear that this is the first woman that Jesus reveals his true nature to. This is the first person. This woman, this oppressed woman, is the first person that Jesus reveals who he really is to. Dinah's father may not care for her. Dinah's brothers may, not, may use her for personal gain. Shechem may treat her as an object for his own pleasure. We may not hear Dinah's voice, but Jesus does. He cares for her as he does all those who have been abused and neglected and exploited. Psalm 72 puts it like this. 
for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Church, if God cares for the oppressed and the abused, so should we. So should we. We cannot allow their voices to go unheard. This isn't a partisan thing. Don't let your politics tell you who to care about. Don't let your politics tell you that, that unborn lives is a, is a Republican thing, that undocumented lives is a Democratic thing, that any type of lives is a, any left or right kind of thing. We care for all those who are made in the image of God, and especially for those who are oppressed and hurting and abused. We care for all those who God cares for. He has a special heart for those who are hurting. Rachel Den Hollander um, was the first victim to publicly come forward with allegations against Larry Nassar, and she was the final of 156 victims to speak at his trial in 2018. And what you might not know about Rachel, um, you've probably heard her name at some point, um, but as Christians, we have a special interest in this because Rachel is a devoted follower of Christ. And she, in fact, her husband is a PhD student at the same seminary that I went to. Um, she's spoken on many of the podcasts that I listen to. Uh, she's someone that I respect and, and honor. And what she shared was both horrifying and awe-inspiring. Um, she described the abuse that she underwent that I don't need to go into detail uh, about right now, that we're familiar with. And she described how he's a hardened and determined predator. How he would assault hundreds under the guise of medical treatment with parents in their room. And here's just a, a piece of what she told the court that day. Here's what she said. She said, who's going to tell these little girls that what was done to them matters? Who's going to tell these little girls that what was done to them matters, that they are seen and valued, that they are not alone, and that they are not unprotected? Today, that message can be sent with the sentence that you hand down. I ask that you hand down a sentence that tells us that what was done to us matters, that we are known, we are worth everything, worth the greatest protection the law can offer, the greatest measure of justice available. And she asked the question, she wrote a book even asking this question, what is a little girl worth? What is a little girl worth? What are the Dinahs of Somerville, Massachusetts worth? If this is you, I want you to know of the great value that our Lord holds for you. That he loves you so dearly that he would experience the greatest injustice that the world ever, has ever known. You see, there's never actually been a person who has died without any sin, without any wrong, except for Jesus Christ. A true injustice, completely free from guilt, completely innocent, taking the death of a murderer or a thief. And he experienced that injustice so that you might know what it means to experience the love of God. You see, he showed us what true love is. True love is to take on the injustice yourself 
True love doesn't use people. It lays down one's life for another. True love does not use people for personal gratification, but it lays one's life down for another. And he did this so that you would be welcomed into the Father's arms as a beloved child. Later, Rachel, in the same speech, she, she turned her attention to Larry himself and spoke directly to him. And here's what she said. She said, Larry, you spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing things, as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've done and what you've seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. And I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. And this is the power of the gospel, that his heart is for the abused and the neglected, but not excluding even the abuser, that all those who would call on Christ will be saved, the message is the same. Only Jesus can save, and all you need is faith in him and repentance of your sin. Jesus bore the wrath reserved for each of us so that we might be able to experience God. And friends, if you're here today, and you're in one of those two categories, I know there's plenty of us that aren't the abused or the abuser, the message of the gospel is the same for us. But if you're in one of those two categories, to the abused, you need to know of God's heart for you. You need to know of what Christ did and the way he loves and the way he is pursuing after those who have been hurt. But to the abuser, you need to be warned of the justice that is coming your way. That our God is a God of justice and that his wrath will be poured out on all those who do not call on Christ to save them from their sin. We must take our repentance seriously. That we have to, as Rachel Denhollander said, experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that we might know the, the freedom and the forgiveness of the good news of Jesus. As Jesus prepared for his death and resurrection, he... Um, initiated a sacred meal. And with this meal, we remember what he has done for us. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed. And the disciples were probably a bit confused at that time, but now we know that this is something that we do to remember the love of Christ that says, I lay my life down. I don't use people. I lay my life down to show them my love. And we're being reminded of that good news today. And you're invited to consider where you need to repent, where you need to turn to the Lord to forgive you each and every week as we receive this meal. Church, let's stand. Let's pray.
and let's respond to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, God, we pray that it might sink deeply into our hearts, that our cares would be the same as your cares. Uh, God, help us to have an eye for those who have been hurt, neglected. Help us to do a better job protecting our sisters. Help us to do a better job protecting our daughters. And Jesus, we thank you for laying your life down, for loving us as you have. Uh, God, we pray that uh, anyone in this room would, who's experienced these things today would experience the peace that transcends all understanding that we have in Christ Jesus, that he loves us, he cares for us, that he's got us. And we ask that um, as we respond to this time, that you make our hearts soft to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would pour yourself out to us, that we would experience your goodness and your kindness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.